Hello and welcome to AmateurLogic.tv. This is episode 10 and I'm Jim. I'm George and Tommy will be joining us from Missouri over Echo Link a little later in the show. We're here in Old Trace Park today shooting outdoors. It's a nice, beautiful, warm fall day here in Mississippi. George, why don't you tell our viewers what we're doing here and what we're going to take a look at. Well, this is one of our uh, favorite testing grounds out here. You may remember episode four when we uh, tested the cantina that we'd built in episode three. This is a park that uh, I was at during that shoot. And so we came out here again because we wanted to bring the cantina back out for another spin, but this time we wanted to add a little more metal to the mix. Yeah, it's uh, kind of like the heavy metal episode. Well, I guess you could call it that. <laughs> this time we brought a little extra with us. As Tim There's, the two, tool yeah. men Taylor would say, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, we have this RCA Direct TV dish standing in for Tommy here between us. <laughs> anyway, we're going to put the cantina on this and see what kind of difference it makes. I think you might be surprised. Now, through the Magica Echo Link, we're going to go to Tommy in Missouri and see what he's got for us this month. Tommy, is it as windy up there as it is here? No, it's not too windy right now, Jim. It was yesterday. Um, we generally get the bad weather about a day before you guys do, so expect it to kind of cool off a little bit tomorrow if it's the case like it normally is. This month, I'm going to have some interesting stuff on photo tips. Um, as I mentioned in the last episode, we had a few requests, so I'm going to take care of one of those this month, and we're going to do some nighttime photography and uh, show you some of the pitfalls and things to watch out for that and learn that it's not exactly an exact science. Um, so we'll give you a little bit of an education in how to, how to make some pretty neat pictures at nighttime. Oh, okay. Does that mean we're going to see some of those, like, two-mile-long cartel light yeah. photos? <laughs> Well, it sounds like he's going to keep us in suspense, Jim. Let's just go ahead and watch it. Shut up, boo! Hi, I'm Tommy. Welcome to another episode of Photo Tips. This month we're going to take a viewer request for some long exposures. Um, it's Halloween, uh, or there around Halloween. You'll probably be actually viewing this in November. Nevertheless, we've still got the Halloween seasonal twist. We're going to take some long exposures at night here in the cemetery. And uh, trust me, it's very, very dark here after the sun goes down. And we're going to see what we can come up with on that. Uh, also, we're going to try something a little different. We're going to try some long exposures of the stars. And you can actually see the rotation of the Earth uh, in the star patterns. It's pretty interesting. And we'll cover a few... Uh, Pros and cons, pitfalls, things to watch out for when doing long exposures, and uh, also the, the necessary equipment. Speaking of uh, equipment, one thing that you're going to need is a camera that can do uh, long exposures. Most of them have a bulb setting, and that's what you'll need to use to lock the, the shutter open for over 30 seconds, which is the default the longest setting most cameras have 
the ones that we're going to fool with are going to be in the minutes area. So you're going to need a cable release. Cable release basically hooks onto your camera and it's either mechanical or electronic depending on your type of camera. But you can lock it down and time your exposure using a watch or some timing device and judge your exposures like that. Cable releases come in several varieties. The one that we've got here is mechanical. You push the plunger down and turn the set screw to hold it down. When you get finished, just release the set screw. And like I said, you'll have to do some manual timings to get your exposures right. Well, let's take a look at the samples that we're taking here and, and uh, let's discuss them and see what we can do. Okay, we've got several samples I took here. They were all taken on the tripod with the camera in the same direction. Um, you can see uh, this is a two minute exposure, 119.8 seconds, so that's pretty well two minutes. I timed that with my watch. It's, I was pretty lucky to get it that close. Um, that The length of that exposure was basically some kind of educated guesswork from doing this in the past. There's really not a scientific method in determining how long of an exposure that you should take. You, light meters generally don't read uh, into the minutes. So I basically start around two minutes depending on the brightness of the image and then kind of bracket from there. Bracket means you know decrement or increment your exposure based on kind of previewing in, in the uh, LCD of the camera when you get finished with your exposure. Um, I lucked up pretty close on the two minute. It looks pretty pleasing. This was in the cemetery. It goes along with our Halloween theme for the October or the fall months. And anyway, it was so dark in there, I could barely see how to walk between the gravestones without tripping. There was a small street light way, way, way off in the distance to the left, and that's why you're seeing the strong shadows going from left to right. Um, it was quite a, quite a distance off, and the light was very weak. I tried to find a cemetery around here with with no street lights whatsoever, but that's almost impossible to find, so this was the best I could do. Um, when you're taking these long exposures, there's a couple of pitfalls to watch out for. One of them is color shift. You have that same problem if you take long exposures with film or with digital. Uh, I think with film it's uh, a lot harder to compensate for. I shot these images with RAW, like I always do, um, and that allowed me to tweak the color balance, the white balance on the image, to get it more like what uh, I think it should have looked like. Um, the other downfall is um, sensor noise. When you take a long exposure, there some of the pixels in there have are stronger or weak, I'm not sure exactly which, but they make real hot spots in the picture and they show up as colored blotches, which you can see here. There's some blue and red ones and they're really distracting and uh, make the picture almost unusable in my opinion. So what I did was turn on uh, long exposure noise reduction. If you look up here at the top you can see it's off on this image. Let's go back and take a look at the other one again and you can see it's on. And how that really works is it, it takes the two minute exposure to, to get the image that you want and then the camera is actually busy for another two minutes taking another picture with the shutter closed. 
and what that does is it gets these hot pixels because we took this the image of the same length of time it takes a black picture with these exact same pattern of hot pixels and then it'll subtract those against the real image that you took and you end up with this so pretty ingenious method really it's not totally flawless because if you look at some of these you'll see some dark spots in the image this would actually print up pretty nicely whereas the other one wouldn't those would show up like a sore thumb and uh, the dark spots would be barely noticeable uh, I'm going to try one other technique I wanted to do the, the typical stereotype long exposure of the tail lights and the traffic but the weather has been, been very unpredictable around here and I did not get a chance to do that I did try one other long exposure technique which I think was pretty interesting and I took this one this is a five minute exposure of the sky and we can see the stars um, the earth's rotation in the stars actually that evening there was supposed to be a meteor shower and while I didn't see one with my naked eye I apparently caught one uh, in my exposure because you can see the street going against the um, the way the rotation is in the sky so I, I'm pretty sure that was would have been one of the meteors from uh, the meteor shower that was supposed to be around that evening thought that was pretty neat um, this five minute exposure it was pitch black out there and this tree I didn't even see it in the viewfinder actually when I was pointing the, the, view, the viewfinder up to the sky to take the image so that kind of gives you an idea of some things that you could see it's a it's a lot of fun to take those long exposures like that and uh, you get some really neat or eerie results depending on you know the subject matter it's pretty fun uh, long exposures are also a lot of fun at night and uh, there people use them typically on water scenes to make the water look uh, almost uh, misty or or you know real smooth and uh, it's a pretty neat effect and we may do some of those in, uh, in a later date I thought this was a pretty neat image we've got some of both of those techniques together we've got the cemetery down here lit up but we also have the stars in the sky and if I could have found a place just a little bit darker this would have been more exaggerated uh, I may try to get around and find one uh, different cemeteries since I'm kind of new to this area I've had a limited selection to choose from but uh, anyway I think you agree it's a pretty interesting result well as you can see that's a pretty dramatic uh, images especially the graveyard ones I think that's really awesome when I took those pictures here you could hardly see at all how to even walk into the place after looking at the images it almost looks like it was lit up um, like I said, there was a small, small street light way out over in the distance over there, and that was pretty much the only light source. It just got amplified by using the over two minute exposure. Go out and give those a try, and uh, I think you'll find it a lot of fun. As always, if you have any other suggestions for photo tips in upcoming episodes, give me an email tmartin at amateurlogic.tv, and I'll do my best to get them on. Have any questions or comments about this episode, same address. Um, I'll see you next month on Photo Tips. Thanks. Wow, Tommy, that long exposure stuff is cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. You have to watch out for uh, noise on your digital cameras. That's why we use the 
long exposure noise reduction built in, and uh, it takes care of a good bit of that. Rest of it you can tweak out with your software. Well, Tommy, I, you know, the star trail is a new thing to me. I, I guess I really hadn't paid attention, but I sure didn't know you could do that kind of thing yourself. Yeah, it's, it's not something that just, you know, the everyday guy does, but uh, I, I find it kind of fascinating. Hopefully a few of the, the uh, viewers will as well. I know they're like geeks uh, in a friendly term out there just like myself, so hopefully they'll like some of the same things I did. All right, well, it's great to talk with you again. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again next month. Yeah, next month. What kind of, what, what you going to have for us? I know you're preparing for that frozen north winter. It's at least frozen north to us down here in Mississippi. Well, next month's episode's going to be a surprise to both of us. So I'm running <laughs> a little bit low on ideas for photo tips, so keep the suggestions coming in. Send them to my email address at tmartin at amateurlogic.tv. Yeah, it's good to be able to communicate with Tommy, you know, through the yep. radio still, even though he's a long ways away. Yeah, amateur radio coming through when nothing else will. Yep. I love it when a plan comes together. Well, Jim, what do you got for us in this episode? Okay, we're going to go back to capacitor building, high voltage capacitor building. Uh, you probably recall the pudding cup capacitor yeah. scenario from uh, episode 8. Well, today we're going to wind that up, part two, and we'll show you what happens when you pour a bunch of Bondo into pudding cups and stick them all together. Sounds sticky. <laughs> Let's look at it. Okay, here you go. Hello, sports fans, and welcome back. This is part two of how to build a high-voltage pudding cup capacitor, wherein we've taken pudding cups chocolate pudding actually and constructed our own high voltage capacitor at least mm, about 75% of the way complete. How did we do that? Let's review. In part one we took pudding cups and we wrapped them in aluminum foil. We squeezed that as tightly as we could with the aid of another pudding cup and got as many wrinkles out as possible on the bottom then, we put a piece of our aluminum foil tape, which by the way is really good stuff. Go get you some aluminum foil tape today. You can use it for making antennas and all sorts of good stuff. Pick it up at Home Depot, just like you can all this stuff. Uh, we put a piece of our aluminum foil tape across the bottom so that that would be covered with aluminum. Uh, on the inside, we taped our tab. You see this long, tall thing sticking up? We just took some aluminum foil and folded it up and made this strip out of. And we just held it in here and taped it in. Then, of course, we put it on our pudding cup and pressed and pressed and pressed to make it, you know, fit nice and look cool. Now, what's the purpose of all that? That's what we're going to feed the electricity down. It's going to be high. The reason it's so long is it needs to be tall to be above the stack of our pudding cups because, yeah, we're going to stack them. The uh, other pudding cup here, you see here are both the tabs. You would not want to stack them where the two tabs were aligned, at least not these two cups. You want alternating cups to be stacked with their um, tabs opposite 
each other. Very important, absolutely crucial that the pudding cups be stacked that way. Here's the next one. Would you stack it where the tab is over on this side? No, you stack it where the tab is over on this side. And finally, here's the last one. And he stacks with his tab aligned to the opposite side. So now what you've got, and let me zoom out a little bit so you can tell for sure, is you've got four pudding cups stacked. Two of the tabs alternate to this side and two tabs alternate to this side. And we put just a clear plastic cup on the bottom to cover the bottom one. For part two, we're going to take our pudding cup cap and we're going to fill it with Bondo, this good stuff. Why is that? Well, Bondo's made out of polystyrene, so it's a good dielectric. That is to say, it's something good to put between our pudding cups. And the mass that it will give the capacitor will help the capacitor not to change its value with the changing seasons or with the changing environmental temperature. And that's a plus. That's a benefit. Okay, let's finish making our high voltage capacitor. about to set one of our pudding cups inside another and I hope it's enough to make it overflow we have overflow making sure that we alternate the tabs so this tab goes on the other side and I was surprised with the first one that I did it's hard right here man I guess since they fit so well it's hard to push one in and, and get it to push out the contents stuff's starting to get warm. Uh, the chemical process between the hardener and the filler is just that. It's a chemical reaction. And heat is one of the byproducts of the chemical reaction. So be careful that you do not mix too much hardener in your filler and potentially or possibly burn up your pudding cup or cups. Woohoo! Bottom cup is quite warm now, quite warm. Woohoo! Bottom cup is hot. <laughs> it's another day.
We've poured our Bondo. We've let it sit. We've let it dry. It's actually been about four days. I was surprised. It took a really long time for the Bondo to dry. It did get really hot in uh, curing. Uh, I don't know if I put too much or too little hardener. I haven't gone back and studied up on the chemistry and specifics of that. But it didn't get hot enough to burn or melt the plastic cups, so I was pleased. Uh, relieved, actually. So yeah, it did take several days, especially for the mass quantity and the top cup to dry. But now, it's cured, it's dry, and essentially, we're through with our homebrew high-voltage capacitor. Now all that lacks and remains to be done is a little testing to see uh, what value our capacitor is giving or measuring. Let's see if I can get you a good shot here of the capacitor and what it looks like in its final homebrew glory. That's what the Bondo looks like. It's actually pretty messy, as you can see on the sides, but that can all be cleaned up. You know, stray capacitance is everywhere, and you can, you can pick it up right out of the air. So we'll try to combat that, as it were, by making our lead shorter, and then clamping down on them. There we go. Now we'll do a little zooming in so you can get a look at the meter. And here you can see the value that we're getting as a result, as a measurement. And you can see it is changing by a few picofarads, but essentially it's measuring right around 370 picofarads of capacitance. The nice thing about our capacitor is that you can put a lot of voltage through the capacitor at that measurement. There you have it. High voltage pudding cup capacitor home brewing at its finest. <laughs> well Jim, I know Rob will be proud to see this uh, finish up on the capacitor. Yes, Rob <laughs> was one of the viewers who uh, wrote in an email and said he was really interested in seeing part two come to fruition. In, in several ways, he yeah. said that. <laughs> there it is, Rob. Yeah. So, uh, Jim, yeah, it's pretty interesting, and I saw that you did measuring on it all. Is this the value that you had targeted? I mean, did it come in as you thought it would? It actually did not come in as I thought, I, as I thought it would, but it actually is the value that I needed for my, ultimately, for my project. Good. Uh, we were, well, actually, I guess I said that wrong. It is the value I was targeting. It's not what I was expecting, but it okay, is the value I was okay. targeting. I didn't expect it to come in as see, I was folks, targeting. The problem is that he hasn't actually finished this yet, so we have no idea whether it came in right or not. It, it actually is finished, and we do have our measurements. Oh, we but, do? Yeah, we okay. do have our measurements, but, um, but it just isn't tested yet. Uh. Okay, so how are you going to test the capacitor? Well, that is a slight problem. I don't have a high voltage source, no high pot or anything, so really the only way I have of testing it is to hooking it up to my antenna, my ham rig, and just trying it. 
So hook it up to your rig and burn, baby, burn. Uh, that's, that's it, exactly. <laughs> and hope that you don't burn, baby, burn the rig up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but we'll see. That's, that was outside the scope of this segment, and I don't know that we'll ever have that in a segment. Uh, but perhaps I can at least give a report on it, maybe, yeah. in a future segment. Well, it was a cool project, and yeah. it's not something that many folks could use, but the few who need one of those, here's you another option. There you go. Yeah, big big item for uh, ham radio guys that talk on the low bands. Yep. Well, I guess everybody's been wanting to see what we've got coming up next. This will be our uh, latest incarnation of the Cantina. Yeah, tell us, tell me a little bit about, I, I kind of got an idea, but tell me a little bit about exactly what it is that we're doing today. Well, what we're gonna do today is take the Cantina that we previously built, and I don't remember the episode numbers. Three or four, something like that. I think that. Uh, maybe we built it in episode three. And here's the finished product, our active Cantina. Just plug it into the notebook and we're ready to go. And then we tested it out here at this same location. In four? In episode four. And, I seem to remember that. And we found that we could get about uh, three miles all the way across the uh, lake here behind us. And that was pretty good. We probably could have got further too. But you know, we've seen uh, projects on the internet where people have taken direct TV dishes and uh, added antennas to them and use them for Wi-Fi and, you know, playing pretty good uh, results from that. So we thought we'd take the Cantina and stick it on and just, just see what difference adding a direct TV dish to your Cantina makes. Ooh, it's gonna be interesting to see how we do that. Yeah, now what we're doing here is purely experimental. In other words, we're not, um, this is not a permanent installation. We're just gonna take this and strap it together best we can out here on a windy day, just for proof of concept. And hope it holds together. I hope it holds together and the wind doesn't blow it over. So George and I might be parasailing off. You might yeah. see us in a minute holding onto the ditch. Yeah. Sure is windy today. It's gonna to be hard holding that dish on top of the uh, little tripod we've got. Yeah. We're starting to pick up some stuff with that stumbler. And... Ooh, let's have a look. <laughs> okay, we're starting to find uh, quite a few I hear access that. points. But I guess the best looking signal we got is this guy. Let's take the cantina and see if we can peek it on him. We're panning through trying to get the best signal we can on this guy here. And we're dropping off in signal a little. As a matter of fact, we lost him. So let's pan back in. I'm going to show folks where we have the cantina pointed. Okay. It looks like it's gonna be that house right there. On that stumbler, we picked up this guy to be, I would call him uh, approximately 82 or 83 at the best. Let's go to the dish and see what that does.
guess I can get in a better place. We'll put the uh, dish here on a handy speaker tripod. We'll remove it off of the camera tripod. We'll take the antenna over to the dish. That's where the secret comes in. Now, as I was saying, this is not uh, going to be left outdoors. I'm hearing other signals. We're trying to just strap this thing on as best we can. Um, this is not permanent. This is strictly for proof of concept. We've already said that. Okay, and I actually, I made a little rig for adjusting this with and setting it up. I found a few uh, formulas and all on the internet for, um, for say trying to find the focal point of a dish and, and set it and all that but on this project I threw all that out the window we didn't use anybody else's plans for this um, what I did is made me a couple pieces of cardboard and a rig here where I could measure exactly where the old direct TV feed point was the old horn set right here exactly in the center so then I made me some marks where I could center up our can here and get it essentially in the same exact place that the direct TV dish was. George, I or, hear that it's already making a difference. I hear many more targets popping in on that stumbler. Yeah, so let's, let's see what's happened since we went to the dish. Our signal has dropped. Do you believe that, Jim? I uh, believe it. There's probably something wrong with it if it did. <laughs> well, let's... Uh, Let's spin the dish a little bit and see if we can pick it up some. Okay. I hear some other signals yeah, popping in. Yeah, I have uh, more players coming to the party here. All right, we're going to pan the dish. The first thing I found when I began experimenting with the dish is it's much more critical what direction you're turning cantina is real wide compared to the dish. And we will actually be able to beat that. You're, you're pointing straight into the camera now, George. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll loosen up a couple of the nuts here on the dish where we can uh, do a little adjustment to the elevation. Here comes the bride, y'all.
Maybe we should mention there is a wedding going on somewhere here in the park behind us. Yeah, outdoor wedding. They picked a pretty good day for it. It is a little windy. All right, as we begin tilting down, the signal is increasing. Yeah, I thought we were going to have to tilt down. Most of our viewers, George, may not be aware that when shooting on a level plane, the dish is actually pointed down. When shooting downhill as we are, it's pointed even further down and may look like we're pointing straight into the ground, but due to the fact that it is an offset fed satellite dish, it, it is actually focusing radio waves from directly parallel to the horizon when it's pointed down. So this looks like the strongest signal that we found right now. And we can make some additional tweaks to this by doing a little pan. And uh, there's a party crasher. Yep. Ex-boyfriend, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we couldn't have asked for better material. We started out with just the cantina alone. Our signal strength was in the neighborhood of, uh, we're gonna call it 80, although most of the time it was dropping below that, 82 or so. And when we got out here and we tweaked a little bit on the dish, we found that the signal is uh, much higher here. So we see that we started out in the neighborhood of 80, then after we made our adjustments, our signal came up so much that uh, we were getting peaks around 70. So that's about a 10 dB gain. Another Actually, 10 dB gain. we were about 82, so it's about 12 dB. This is yeah. about the same thing I found at my other test site, which didn't have all the pine trees and, uh, and the wind. Which certainly makes a big difference. Made a big difference. So we're looking at getting 10 to 12 dB gain just by strapping this can <laughs> on the end of the dish, and it's not strapped on there very well. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's even a little crooked there. We could probably increase the signal a little more. And uh, just just by doing some uh, spinning of the, the horn and all. But I oh, did find right. in my test at home that this wasn't that critical. I mean, it was somewhat, but I could move in to the dish a little and pull out a little. And it didn't seem to be that critical in this application. Uh, is also changing the polarization. Spinning it didn't seem to have as much effect as I would have thought it had. So uh, that's it. That's what happens when you stick a grape juice can on a direct TV dish and look for Wi-Fi signals. Wow, George, I tell you what, that is a lot of gain. It may not sound like a lot of gain, but 12 dB in radio terms that, that's huge. I, I can't really think of what kind of uh, perspective we could use or what kind of analogy we could use to give our viewers uh, a perspective on how much gain that actually is. Well, if you were going to double your signal, how many dB would that be, Jim? That would be 3 dB, George. 3 dB of gain actually doubles your signal strength. So we've effectively quadrupled the signal just by putting it on the dish. That's correct. 
That, that would be exactly correct, four times. And I'm not sure that we ever determined the exact gain of the cantina itself, but we think it's in the 10 to 15 dB range, somewhere That's in right. there. As I recall. So you put the two together and you've got uh, better than 20 dB a gain over what you'd have with just your standard notebook. So that means you could take your typical 100 milliwatt card and really get a lot out of it or into it. Yeah, yeah. Just a little height on that thing, um, gee. <laughs> We don't really know how far it would go. We actually have a site about 10 miles that we would like to have tested it out, maybe one day. But yeah. uh, today we just wanted to uh, have a reference to just see how much gain there was. That's right. And uh, I brought a little something along here. I, you know, we haven't uh, done a, a website roundup in a while, and we probably won't be returning to that right away. But, you know, every now and then you run across something um, that you think other folks could use, and I ran across something recently. Uh, a little uh, program or? A little add-on that you can use with uh, virtually any program to create PDF files. Ooh, well that's be nice because PDFs are getting more and more popular. Yeah, you know, you can read them um, easily enough with Adobe Acrobat, but you can't write them without buying the very expensive uh, Pro version. Oh yeah, that's right, hard to produce. Yep. At least on a Windows platform. Yeah. Take a look at this option. PDF is a de facto standard for electronic documents and forms exchange today. And Cute PDF Writer makes it easy to create professional quality PDF files from almost any printable document. It's free for personal and commercial use. There's no watermarks and no pop-up web advertisements. Cute PDF Writer was selected as one of the 50 best free downloads by a computer shopper. Cute PDF Writer is a free version of commercial PDF creation software. Cute PDF Writer installs itself as a printer subsystem, and this enables virtually any Windows application that can print to create professional quality PDF documents with just a push of a button. Cute PDF Writer requires the PostScript to PDF converter, uh, GhostScript. It's an interpreter for the PostScript language and the PDF file format. There are links to both of these on the left-hand side of the page and where you can download Qt PDF and the GhostScript converter. To test Qt PDF, we'll open a document in Microsoft Word. Now we will print the document and we'll select Qt PDF Writer from the list of printers. And we'll click OK to print and Qt PDF prompts us for a file name for the PDF document. Within a few seconds, your PDF file is ready for viewing. If you need to create PDF documents, give the free Cute PDF Writer a try. There's also a professional version available for those who need added features. Well, there it is, Cute PDF Writer. I use it uh, quite often. I even actually I have Acrobat, but it's an older version, and you know it's it's just its own application. But with Cute PDF Writer, you know you can print uh, a PDF from anything. I so. see that highly useful under Windows for me too. Oh, yeah. Uh, on the Macintosh, which you know I'm a Macintosh yeah. owner and fan, uh, they produce, or they, Apple Macintoshes, produce PDFs natively. That's built into the operating system. It, it's not necessary to buy an add-on. Wow. So, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Their is. whole, in fact, their whole display system is based. Print system, display system. 
is all based on the PDF, uh, what would you call it, paradigm, I guess. Wow, well, I guess Adobe's real happy about that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe so. One of the checks in the mail. Yeah. And so, there you go. We'll see you next time for Amateur Logic TV. I'm Jim. I'm George. And for Tommy's proxy. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye. Well, that's it, and uh, do join us again next month for episode 11, when Jim says... <laughs> I don't know what the heck I'm going to say in episode 11. There, you heard it here first. <laughs> oh...